God's people are called to wake him. Three times we find in the New Testament we're called to wake him. Romans 13, verse 11. Listen. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Again to God's people. Ephesians 5, 14. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ should give thee life. God is calling to his people to awake and awake. Now, why is he calling us to wake? Well, we see this found in our scriptures. Go down with me to verses 17 to 23. And the first reason why we see this is because God issues a fiery plea. God is issuing a fiery plea. Now, we notice in verses 17 to 23, God is speaking to his people and is not on friendly terms. God is talking to his people about judgment to come. He's telling them that there's judgment pending that's coming against Jerusalem for its sin. It is God himself pleading with his people to waken. Now, as we read verses 17 to 23, there's two sets of judgments we read there. One is a current judgment. A current judgment because the people of God, in spite of the fact that he loved them and all, the people of God had given themselves over to much idolatry. Idolatry was rampant throughout Jerusalem and Judah. We've spoken much about this. I'm not going to spend time on that. But there was, coming ju- there was current judgment. And it was also about the fact of coming judgment in twofold. The coming judgment would be 100 years after the writing of this prophecy where God would send the nation of Babylon down. They would come from the east, the northeast. They would descend upon Jerusalem and they would take the city captive. We read all about that through the Bible, through the book of Jeremiah. I might later this year preach through segments of Jeremiah, uh, perhaps on Sunday morning or Sunday nights as we get a little bit further into the year. But we see Jeremiah was God's prophet during the time prior to and during the Babylonian captivity. When Jerusalem was taken, the the gates were burned down, the walls were broken down, the temple was burned, and a large number of the young people were taken as captives. In fact, a large number of their people were taken captive and brought up to the northeast of Babylon there to be assimilated to the Babylonian culture there. And so God was talking about a future judgment. Now, when you read about the Babylonian captivity, it was a cruel time. It was a hard time. It was a concerning time. It was a time that brought God's people down on their knees and made them cry out to God. But it would be a 70-year captivity. Nothing would change the fact. God had said, because you have skipped out on doing the on tithing and you've skipped out on the Sabbath years and every seven years letting the land rest, he said, because you didn't do that, I'm going to multiply that out. And God said, for 70 years, 70 consecutive years, you'll be under captivity. So talk about that captivity. But as we read this a little bit deeper, we also recognize it's not only about the coming judgment in Babylon, but it takes us even to the great tribulation time after the rapture of the believers and speaking about the, the judgment of God upon earth and the judgment of God even upon Israel in the time. Let me pause and just say this right now for all of us here today. I want to tell you God loves us. And I want you to understand God loves us very, very much. And God loves us so much, He wants you and I to have close fellowship with Him. But I want to tell you something right now. It doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democratic, or none of those. What we are entering into right now, with the democratically controlled presidency, House of Representatives, and Senate, you're going to see more government oppression, more government control, more government spending. And you say, well, that's a good thing. It's a good thing if you're not paying taxes, if you're the recipient and not the giver. Amen? Come on, somebody help me with that today, okay? You're hardworking people. You're hardworking people. And I'm not going to give you a lead to say, well, it would have been better if this happened that. Let me tell you something right now. As we see the plan of things unfold right now, 
You just go read it yourself. You just go, go look it up. Go get unbiased information. We are moving into a time unprecedented in the United States of America. It is not a democratically controlled leadership. It is a socialistically led leadership. We are going, we are in socialism right now in this country. The government in control. Now, you know, I, I have some friends who have come here from communist countries. They immigrated with great difficulty coming from and they're up in arms. In fact, I have friends in the communist countries who can't get out who send me messages on WhatsApp. They say, what in the world is happening to your country? This, they said, that's the very thing we're trying to get out of our country from. What is going on over here? Because they're, getting, they're, getting, and they're, not getting, they're not getting filtered information. They're getting very unfiltered information about what's going on there. And why am I saying that to you? I'm not getting off on politics. Don. Not, that's not my goal here. My goal is to tell you this, that because God loves us, we have to understand that there's a judgment of God even upon America right now. You say, how do you know that, Pastor Paul? Because the Bible says this, and it tells us this in Proverbs 14, verse 12. Righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach unto any people. And I want to tell you right now, we're living in a time where God is pleading to his people to come to him. Now you say, well, how do we know there's judgment here? Well, notice, first of all, we see the picture in this plea. Notice verse 9. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which is drunk at the hand of the Lord, the cup of his fury, that has drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling, and wrung them out. Now, when we see this here in verse 17, this is not the first time, second or third time, but we find where you use the picture, the symbol of the cup of the Lord here, is speaking about, and, and, and the dregs thereof, is speaking about the judgment of God. It's speaking about God, the wrath of God contained in the cup. We're going to read this in Psalms, and we're going to read this even in the book of Revelation. In fact, we did read that in Revelation, as I preached you Revelation last year. We read over in Psalm 75, verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, it is full of mixture, and he poureth out the same. But the dregs thereof, and all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. Now the picture there is this. Here's this cup, this, if you would, this, this cup, this, this, this goblet or whatever it may be. And there's been wine that's been poured into it. And the sediment from the squeezed juice, the sediment is still there. And so the dregs or the sediment settles on the bottom, you know, kind of the debris. We would call it the debris of the, of the liquid there is there. And the person's drunk in the whole thing. They drink both the fluid, the, the liquid, as well as the dregs. Are. And it's basically saying that it's picturing there that the judgment of God, that, that, that the judgment of God has consumed the entire person. It pictures someone who's drunken with, this, with the judgment of God. They're overcome by him. They're under its power. Power, there's nothing they can do to get out of it. If you've ever seen a drunken person, a drunken person is under the power of intoxication. There's nothing they can do to change it. When they're under that power, it, that power oppresses them. They say things they would not have otherwise said. They think things and do things that would not. They're under control of a different, a different arrangement there. And when a person is under the judgment of God, they had no control in that situation. You can pray your heart out and you can do all that you can, but you're not going to reverse the judgment of God. And so there's a picture here that was very familiar to the Hebrews. And this picture to them was very colorful as it talked about the, the judgment of God upon the people of, of, of God there. And they're drinking out of the dregs thereof. And he calls it a cup of trembling, trembling that has wrung them out. We see a picture, but we see the punishment. Notice in verses 18 to 23 very quickly, we see the essence of this punishment of God. Now what is happening when, when God's judgment comes on a nation? When God's judgment, or chastening if I should call it that, God's chastening, his spanking, his discipline if you would. God disciplining his people here. Notice some things things we find here. Well, number one, in verse 18, they have no guidance. 
They're, they're wandering helplessly. Not if you've ever been lost before, but it's a terrible feeling to be lost, amen? Especially if you don't have GPS or anything else. You're just stuck somewhere. You don't have any idea where you're going. And when you're going and going and going for a long period of time and realize you're very far from your destination where you need to be, that's a bad feeling. Or even worse, you're trying to get home and you're lost. That's a bad feeling. And he says here, there is no, none to guide her among all the sons which she has brought forth. You know what he's saying there? There's no leadership. There's no guidance. The leadership has failed. He says, uh, neither is there any that will take them by the hand. There's no help to them. They're helpless. There's no one to guide them. They're just kind of stuck by themselves. And almost pictures the adults like little children. They have no guidance. They have no leadership. There's no one to help them. They're left defenseless there. He goes on by saying, they're weak and powerless. He says, there are two things that are come unto thee. And then he asks this question, verse 19. Who shall be sorry for thee? You know, when there's a time of chastening and the judgment of God and punishment from the Lord, it comes to a place like, who feels sorry for you? Nobody feels sorry. I'm going to tell you this. I believe Christians are going to go through some hard times in the days to come. I believe we're going to have some very difficult times. And the truth of the matter is, the outside world could care less. They're going to say, well, they, they know because of what you believe, it's adverse to what we believe. You ought to suffer. They're not going to feel sorry for you. And I'm going to tell you right now, if churches close up, nobody's feeling sorry for churches closing up. If pastors leave the ministry, nobody's feeling sorry for pastors leaving the ministry. And if the churches are not evangelizing and not so many, nobody's feeling sorry for that. And he says, who's, who's going to feel sorry for you when the chasing hand of God comes? It goes even further than that. He's says in verse 20 he says they'll be afflicted and drunken he says later on in verse 19 they're going to be like a wild bull caught in a net they're trapped with nowhere to go they are filled with the fury of the lord and the rebuke of god they're saying here they realize they're in a very terrible situation in fact here's what he says as strong as we might think we are right now and we think we can resist the judgment of god you say why well, pastor you don't understand i'm healthy you don't understand pastor i am at my top right now i am a phi beta kappa man you don't know god my, my god knows my intelligence and my wisdom you know how he describes the judgment of God even upon his people? He says, look at it right here. He says, they'll be even like people that lie down and people walk all over them. Look at verse 23. But I will put this cup, he says, this cup of trembling. He says, I will put that into the hand of them that afflict thee, which have said to thy soul, bow down that we may go over thee. And thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. We, we become, you know, when the judgment of God comes, People are so helpless and so defenseless. It's just like they just say, I don't know what to do. And they just lay down and people roll right over them. It's just like a car running over them, people walking right over. You are so defenseless and so weak that you're walked all over. There's the punishment in judgment. There's the picture of judgment. But notice in verse 17, there's the plea in judgment. God makes a fiery plea. I want to tell you right now, when God calls out to you and I, it is not with passiveness. It is not in a weak tone. Oh, would, would you come back to me now? Oh, don't you know that I love you? He doesn't come. He says, listen, don't you know that judgment is coming and you need to wake up? That's what God is saying there. And so the plea of God is realizing several things. Number one, God is holy and just. Can I hear an amen to that? God is holy and just. We must remember this. The supreme attribute of God is his holiness. All of the attributes of God that he has are an emanation of that holiness. We have to understand that. When God loves, he doesn't love like you and I. He loves in holiness. When God, when God displays mercy, he does not display mercy as you and I. He displays mercy. And we cannot grasp the holiness of God. That's why Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm glad that God put that there the way he did. He, when he saw the holiness of God, his response to that was, woe is me. 
Woe is me. And he said, I'm a man who is, I'm a mess. He said, I'm undone. I'm a man undone with unclean lips. He thought about how sinfully vile he was. Now, if you spend enough time in God's word and you spend enough time in prayer in the presence of God, you start to get a little bit of a sense of the holiness of God. And you start to feel like Isaiah himself. You say, man, I'm a man undone. I'm a woman undone with unclean lips and I don't deserve anything that God gives to me. And so, We have this sense here in verse 17 that God is holy, and in His holiness, God must judge sin. Now, Abraham asked this question, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And he will. God will do right. God has to judge sin, and God does judge sin, and God judges sin in the life of the believer. We call it chastening or discipline. God judges the sins of a nation. Listen, we see that. We see, and by the way, if you're not part of an adult growth group, you ought to join an adult growth group. Our growth groups right now from college and up are going through a study of the life of Elijah, and I will tell you right now, I wish I was the one teaching through all the lessons, but I just can't. I'm only doing a few here and there. But I'm going to tell you this. We can parallel Elijah's time with Ahab and Jezebel as the king and queen. We can parallel what happened during that time exactly with what's happening in America right now because they eradicated the name of God. They eradicated the worship of God. Preachers were, were uh, it was illegal to be a preacher of God's word. They had to go and hide. I mean, everything that we see happening in our world right now was happening during that time. And God raised a one lone voice to stand up against all of that to preach out God's word. But as we look at that, Here's what I'm trying to say to you, that Elijah had to take a stand during that time. And one of the things God did to judge the land, he sent a famine in the land. A famine was a result of no rain. A ro- no rain meant there would be a drought. A drought for three and a half years would mean the land would be, de- would be devastated. There were no crops. You have no crops. You have no grass. You have no wheat. Listen to what happens there. Your economy fails. Your economy fails. You have no jobs. You have no jobs. You have no un- income. You have unemployment. You have unemployment skyrockets. There's no money. There's all these things that are happening. And it got to the place where they were more concerned about the animals that feeding the animals than they were about feeding people. I mean, that's where the king was at. I mean, that's the kind of government we're going into. People are more worried about the trees and more worried about the animals than they were about the people there. They're not, they're not taking care of the people. They've got a different agenda. They want to control the people there. And so as we look at the word of God there, we see that God's judgment is showing them, you want, that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. And as we think about the justice of God, we think about the fact in Revelation chapter 20 that the throne of God, and we've been talking about the throne of grace, but we must not lose sight of the fact it is also a throne of justice. And the throne of God is pictured as a great white throne. As a great white throne, it's holy, and it's there that God must judge every unsaved believer. Now, I, my prayer this year is that all of us would be moved with a sense of urgency of the judgment of God upon every unsaved believer. Because there's a day coming, every person who's unsaved, who does not receive Jesus Christ as Savior, who rejects God's offer of salvation, they will stand before that great right throne. And I'm going to tell you, when they stand there, they're going to tremble. And when they stand there, they realize that they're going to be told, they're going to be seen, they're going to see their whole life roll back from the moment of their birth to the day of their death. They're going to see every time there was an opportunity for them to respond to the gospel. They're going to see when someone left the track at the door. They're going to see when they got invited to a Heritage Baptist Church service. They're going to see when they were invited to a live stream service. They're going to see every opportunity where someone sat down to give the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, and they turned it away. They said, not now, not today, not now, today. And they're going to say, but God, don't you understand? I was good. And God's going to tell them, your works don't help you. They're going to say, don't you understand this? And God's going to say, it doesn't matter, because he's going to open another book. It's called the Book of Life. He says, look right here. Your name's not here. You don't have a reservation. There's no place you're in heaven. He says, depart from me, you wicked, to everlasting fire. I mean, that's what the Bible says God's going to do. And so we must be concerned that God is saying, I see ahead what's going to come down. And I'm pleading with you to turn to me. I'm pleading with you to realize judgment is current. Judgment is coming. We see a fiery 
plea of God. But we see a second thing. God tells his people to wake awake for judgment. Here, let's get to some good stuff that he meant right now. Notice verses 1 to 8. In verses 1 to 8, now you have to remember God loves us. I said that earlier. In verses 1 to 8, God gives us a prescription. I call it a faith prescription. Now, when you're sick, you go see the doctor, and you just can't get well, and they, they're going to prescribe some kind of medicine to help you. If you've got a really bad infection, they're going to prescribe some kind of antibiotic. If you've got somebody else going, maybe they'll prescribe a stir. But if there's a prescription that they know that will work, that they'll prescribe for you. Now, God has a prescription for God's people because of indifference and apathy and struggles with sin and all of these things we deal with there. God has a prescription, and it's a faith prescription. And notice two things he gives us this faith prescription. Beginning in verse 1. And then look at verse 4 and verse 7. He tells us to listen to his advice. Three times God says, hearken to me. Now, how many have ever said to your children, listen to me? How many of you are teachers have ever said to your class, listen to me? How many have ever been a Sunday school teacher and you had a little rowdy class and they got, maybe even with adults, they just kept on talking. You say, hey, listen to me. How many have ever heard your preacher say, listen to me? How many of us have ever listened to God say, listen to me? When the old English, God, they used the term hearken. Give me your ear. Hearken to me. And God is telling us in verses 1, 4, and 7 to listen to his advice. He's speaking to save people. Look what he says in verse 1. Hearken to me. Ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. And look again in verse 7. Hearken to me, ye that know righteousness. Look again in verse 4. Hearken to me, my people, give ear to me, O my nation. You know, he's talking, he's talking to you and me. He's talking to God's people. He's talking to people that are in church and people that, that do want to hear God's word and people who do love God and people who are growing in the faith and people who may be weak in the faith. He's saying, listen, I want to give faith prescription. Even though there is coming judgment and even though there's current judgment, I want you to know it doesn't have to stay that way. It can change. But he says, you've got to listen to advice. You've got to hearken to to me. He's telling them that you've got to heed what I'm saying here. Now, these are saved people. We know that because he calls them his people. They are people who are righteous by faith. He talks about that, that there. He tells them in verse 1, look to the rock whence you are hewn and to the hole of the pit from whence you're dig. You know the first thing he's reminding us that we forget about? We need to go back to that day we got saved. We need to go back to the fact that God pulled us out of a pit we could not get out of. He reminds us that he pulled us out of a hole that we were in. You know, sometimes we use the description, man, I am in a hole. I am in a place. You know what we're saying there? We're saying we're in such a deep spot. We, don't, we can't get out. Listen, before you got saved, you and I were in a pit. We were sinking in that pit. When God saved us, thank God, he took his mighty arm and he grabbed you and I by the hand and he pulled us out of that pit and he saved us and he put our feet on a solid rock. And the Bible talks about it in Psalms chapter 40. He put our feet on a solid rock. Listen, you ought to be thanking God today you're not going into the pit of hell. You ought to thank God today that you're not, you're not still in that pit right now wondering what's going to happen. You ought to thank God today that you're saved and God cares about you. He says, go back and look again. Remind yourself of the pit that he pulled you out of. Then he says something else here. He talks later on, he talks about God's comfort for us. And he talks about later on that he says, I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. As my arm shall judge the people. He says, look to the rock. He says, look in verse 4, to the word of God, which is the light of his people. In verse 7, he reminds us, he says, hearken to me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be afraid of the revilings. You know what he's saying there? You, if you turn around for God and you listen to his word, there will be those who are going to laugh at you. There are going to be those who are going to mock you. Hey, listen, when you start living for God, you take a stand for the Lord, and you start waiting for Jesus Christ, you know what happens? Everybody who was your friend all of a sudden decides, you know, I don't know if I want to be your friend. 
And all of a sudden, they make their decision. They want to pull back on you. They don't want to be close to you. And God says here, look, I want you to listen to me. He says, don't be afraid of people that run away from you. Don't fear the loss of relationships. And, and I just learned this along the way. For every person that leaves you, God always provides you two more people for those who leave you. Yes, he does. I mean, yes, he does. He does take care of that. I mean, you say, well, I'm afraid of losing my friend. If, there, if those are the kind of friend, if your friend will not stick with you, that's not a friend. That's not a friend. That's a fair weather friend. A friend loveth at all times. That's what the Bible says. And a brother's born for adversity. They're not a friend if they're going to leave you. But a true friend will stay with you. You know who the greatest friend we have is Jesus Christ. He's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. You ought to rejoice in that. Amen? He's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And so the Bible says here, just realize, you've got to listen to God's advice. You've got to listen. Now listen, I'm going to tell you today. Don't give a deaf ear to God. Listen to His voice. Hearken to the voice of God. But He gives us a second prescription. Number one, He says, listen to His advice, but quickly. Secondly, He gives us second advice. Look at verse 2. And this is the part that encourages me, and I pray encourages you. The second piece of advice, look what He tells me. Now, He's talking to Jews, but it applies to Jews and Gentiles alike. He says in verse 2, Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bear you. Now, Abraham is greatly revered because he's a, the, the, the first patriarch of the Hebrew nation. I mean, really, the Hebrew nation has its roots and beginnings in Abraham. That's what his very name means, the father of many nations. And so whenever you mention Abraham's name, there is a sense of reverence, a sense of respect that the Hebrew nation has had to him. That's why we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. There was something that calmed the hearts of Jews when it read the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. He says, the son of Abraham. I mean, they wanted to know, did he trace his descent from Abraham? And the answer unequivocally is yes. Yes, he can. And so when you think about Abraham, and we read the book of Hebrews, that they thought that, they, they said, well, you're, you know, you may be a saved Jew, but Abraham was greater than Jesus. He had to prove, no, we, revere, we respect Abraham, but Jesus is greater than, than, than Abraham. And so he's telling them this, look to Abraham. Now, for you and I who are here today who are Gentiles, the question is, why should we look to Abraham? Why is that a faith prescription? Because Abraham is a picture of great faith. Abraham, we're to look to Abraham and Abraham's faith. It is a faith prescription. Scripture. Go with me to Romans chapter 4, please. And look at Romans 4. I want you to read this with me. Romans chapter 4. Please turn there quickly. Romans chapter 4, verses 19 to 21. Jew and Gentile alike need to look to Abraham for their faith prescription. And in Romans chapter 4, notice this in the New Testament. Romans chapter 4, he said, where is that at? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Sixth book of the New Testament. Romans is after Acts. It's before 1 Corinthians. And he says this, Romans 4, verse 19. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that which he had promised, he was able also to perform. You know what it's saying there? Abraham was strong in faith, not doubting the promises. He's referring to Abraham being a hundred years old, and Sarah being 90 years old, and God had 25 years before and told them when they were already at the place of infertility, the place where they could not have children, he said, you're going to have a son, and from that son, he will be the seed of a great nation, and I'm going to give you the soil. So he promised him a, a seed and a son and, a, and a, the soil, and he said the extensiveness of the nation, the, land, the soil they would, they would have, and by the way, they don't have all the land yet. That won't happen until the millennial period. They don't have all the land yet, but he says, you know, I promised you all that, 
So Abraham's looking, I'm 75 years old, I've waited 25 years, and now I'm 99 turning 100, Sarah's 89 turning 90, and the Bible describes their physical condition, they were as good as dead. In other words, there was no way humanly they could have children. There was no way biologically they could have children. It just it was not possible. You can get into all the scientific and physiological and biological discussion and argument. The bottom line is, without all the terminology that confuses you, unless you're in that field, is basically this, that they were unable to have children. And the Bible says, though they were weak in their body, they were not weak in faith. And he said this, they were strong in faith, not doubting the promises. And God is telling us, we need to look to Abraham who was strong in faith. Now quickly, let me tell you some things why we need to look to Abraham for a faith prescription. The first reason why is we find in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham, God came to him at a time when he was shaky and worried and anxious and fearful. And God told him this wonderful thing. He said, fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, there's two things he's telling us there, which is the whole sermon by itself. Number one, Abraham, I don't care who the enemies are out there. I am your shield. I am your covering. I'm going to protect you. In other words, we would say this in English here, in our term and in our culture. I've got your back. Amen? God was saying, I've got your back and I've got your front, Abraham. You don't have to worry about that. I am your covering. I am thy shield. Secondly, he said... I'm thy exceeding great reward. He said, Abraham, I'm your compensation. Abraham, I am your reward. I'm going to, I have a blessing for you way past what you could ever imagine. And that at that moment encouraged Abraham. It stirred up his faith. In fact, we find that those beginning days of faith happen right there in Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. We look to Abraham, and you need to look to Abraham. During this time, if we go into turbulent waters, we need to realize God is our shield and exceeding great reward. But there's something else. We go over to Genesis 18. And we need to look to Abraham for exceptional service to God. Now, I realize we're under COVID restrictions and all that, but I'm going to keep emphasizing and reminding us we need to serve God. And we need to serve God with all our heart. And when we serve God, we must serve God with exceptional service. In chapter 18, we have that we have the Lord coming to him in a pre-incarnate form. <coughs> He comes down in what we call a theophany. It's the Lord Jesus Christ with an angel of God. And Abraham saw that. He looked out his tent in the middle of the day, and he saw the Lord approaching this angel. And immediately as he saw the Lord approaching him, he realized that he needed to get into service mode. And we see wonderful, wonderful lessons there about service. Now let me give you some things real quickly about that. As we see Abraham going to him, number one, Abraham was swift in his service. It says several times, he ran and he hastened. Listen, when there's a call to serve God, we shouldn't be dragging our feet and taking our time like this, you know. Man, we need to get to it, amen. Just walk real fast and get saved. He hastened. The Bible says he ran and he hastened to serve God. I, I, don't have, I don't have much time for this stuff where we drag our feet and kind of waste our time. He says he ran, he hastened. He was swift in his service. Hey, by the way, he was spontaneous in his service. The Bible says immediately he didn't have a discussion with wife. Well, what do we do about this? You know our common thing today because we're afraid of offending people or we want to have a democracy and everybody has to have a voice in things that we have to say, well, what do you think about this? And we waste all this time talking about things. We waste all this time worried about this, worried about that. You know what Abraham did? He went to his servant. First thing he did, he grabbed some water. Spontaneously, he brought water. He brought water as a servant. Then he went to his wife. He said, now, Sarah, I realize it's not supper time, but can you make some cakes of bread? He's basically telling her to go to work. He said, you need to get some, you need to get some flour. Don't put any leaven in it. You need to make some cakes of bread, these flat cakes of bread. He says he was spontaneous. Listen, serving God, we don't have to worry about all the angles and what we don't have know about and all instructions. Be spontaneous. Elect to serve God. Get involved. He was swift. He was spontaneous. By the way, he subscribed. He got Sarah involved. He got a young man involved. I mean, he got others involved. Listen, service is not what you can do. I think one of the faults of Bible colleges, they get young people so, so riled up about serving God, they forget 
that to reinforce them. The goal is not how much you can do. The goal is how much you can do with other people coming alongside you. Now, those of you who have grown up in this church, and those of you who have been under my preaching, let me encourage you. Take others with you. Get others involved. Realize that there's this, that it's a joy in serving the Lord. Come on, somebody help me with that tonight. It's a joy in serving God. And let's serve the Lord and get other people with you. By the way, he was on standby in his service. He, the Bible says he stood under a tree, and as the Lord was refreshing himself, he, he was waiting to see what the Lord would have him to do. Listen, every one of God's people should always be on standby. I love the fact that we've got medical professionals. A lot of our nurses, they're on standby. They're wait, they're, they're, they come to church. Our, some of our pharmacists, they're on standby. They may get a call, but they're ready to receive the call to go to work there. They've got their stuff in the back of their car. How much more of that should be for those of us who know our Savior, we should be on standby for the service of the Lord. Come on, somebody help me with that this morning. We ought to be on standby for God. We ought to be spontaneous. By the way, he was sacrificial. He took the fatted calf, which was saved for special banquets. You say, Pastor, what kind of special banquet? Like a marriage? Right? Like a marriage? A break celebration? Okay? Somebody famous coming to town? He took the fatted calf and he gave it to the Lord. You know what that was? His service. He gave his best. He gave his best. Listen, don't give Jesus less than your best. Serve him with all your heart. Amen? I mean, you know me around this. Whenever I get involved with whatsoever thy hand finds to do, do it with all thy might. He was sacrificial. He was satisfying. The Bible says God was comforted. That's what it says. The Lord was comforted by what he did. The Lord ought to be pleased. The Lord ought to be comforted. The Lord, the Lord ought to be satisfied. Look to Abraham for exceptional service. By the way, we need to look to Abraham for our prayers and supplications. We're, this is a study we're going to look at. Genesis 18, later on. The Lord turns from Abraham. The reason why he came to visit Abraham was to say hello, but that wasn't his main reason. He came to see Abraham first because he wanted to see Abraham's reaction when he would go from there and stand on a hill. As he stood on the hill, he looked down into the valley. Guess who, where he was looking at? The Lord was looking at two wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you need to read this in Genesis, 18, Genesis 13, 18, and 19 understand it. But Sodom and Gomorrah were very wicked cities. They were immoral cities. They were, they were lawless cities. They were unregenerate cities. They were filled with depraved men and women with just wicked, wicked thinking. Let me just tell you this. If you were a parent, you would not raise your children in Sodom and Gomorrah. You would not live there. You would not even think about living there. But Lot did. Lot lost his mind. Lot went there for the money, and he forgot about the morals. Lot went down there thinking he would get gained, but he forgot about God. And I remind you today, God looked down and he said, I've had it with Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible says their cry went up to heaven. What does that mean? What they were doing simply was so wicked and so vile, it went all the way up to heaven. God said, I've had enough of this stuff. And God was looking at that. Abraham started watching God. And by the way, that's what we need to do. We need to not only wait on God, we need to watch God. Amen? Somebody help me with that. We need to be watching God. How do you watch God? Look at his word and see what he says there. And Abraham got his eyes on the Lord. And he says, man, I know that look. He says, that is not a good look. God is not looking down there like he's going to visit that city and give them a grant or something like that. God's looking at that city. He's about to wipe it out. And he went to him. He said, now shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And Abraham, you know what he did? He went into praying mode. Because you know why? Down in Sodom, he had a, he had a nephew down there that he loved very much. It was his brother's son. He loved that nephew. Now, he knew that nephew went away from God, but he loved that. By the way, if you get away from God, I just want you to know I love you and your family loves you. Don't worry. Just but come back to God. And so he was down there. He was down there, Sodom and Gomorrah. The lot was down there. It was his family, his kids and all that. They've been down there for many years. And Abraham said, man, if God, if I don't intervene, Lot and his whole family are going to be, they're going to be wiped out with that city. And Abraham went into praying mode. Now, he teaches us great things about prayer. One of the things about Abraham we don't study enough is about his prayer life. And I'm going to preach and teach about his prayer life in, in, in probably in a short time, uh, probably even the month of February sometime, if I can get through, through uh, the next several messages. And he teaches us about how to pray in a difficult situation and to change the mind of God. 
He teaches of what we call importunate praying or persistent praying. He taught, and, and we see that in importunate praying, there's two things. You want to write this out, especially those of you students of prayer. We, we, we see two things. One, he was tactical in his praying. Secondly, he was tenacious in his praying. Now, his tactic, being, uh, being tactful, here's what he did. Being tactical, here's what he did. He said, now, Lord, if there were 50 righteous in the city, would you spare it? Now, he's, he's, he's talking to God like, Lord, if you can find 50, right, 50 saved people in the city, would you spare the city? He said, sure, I'll save the city. And he said, what about if there are 45? What about if there are 40? What about the 30? He went all the way down to 10. He said, Lord, if there's just 10. And you know where he was going with that? He was being tactical. He was saying, Lord, I know that Lot's family consists of 10 people. I can't count 50, but I can count 10. And he said, would you save him? God said he would. You know, and then he was tenacious. He just kept going until God, he wanted to keep getting God to say he would. Well, God, 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 listen, God would have answered that prayer except for the fact there were not 10 righteous found in the city. The only one that came out was Lot, and his wife was turned into stone, and his two daughters, his two daughters were all messed up. I mean, it was just a bad situation. But he got it accomplished. He, he, got, he said God said he would, not, he would not destroy the city if he found 10 righteous people. And then we find him a second time praying. We find him down in the land of the Philistines. And he's down there, and God had closed up the womb of, of, the, of the king of the Philistines and all the women down there. He closed up their wombs. And, uh, and he said, now listen, if you want, you want my blessing upon you, you need to let Abraham pray for you. He's a prophet of God. He'll pray for you. That's a, just a great thought there. And he started praying for him, and God opened the wombs of all the ladies. And they, this and uh, uh, the Abimelech, the, the king, and everybody there, they gave, they gave uh, homage and reverence to Abraham. I'm just saying today, we need to look to Abraham for our faith. And we need to look to Abraham by his faith and his praying that he, and that the covering of God and the, and the shield of God and his service. But we see something else. Abraham, we need to look to him and his faith because he believed God for the impossible. Listen, now we get to Genesis 21, and Abraham has been in this place where, where, where God has said, now, now, you've been waiting 25 years. He says, now, I told you I'm going to give you that son. Now, I don't know about you, but would you wait 25 years for answer prayer? I would. You know why? Because it's right here in the Bible. He did. He waited, and the Bible tells us in Genesis 21 that at between 89 and 90, Sarah conceived. Her body was as good as dead, but she conceived, and she went full term. She probably had the normal maternity illness. I imagine she was sick and all those things that go with that. But she, she had labor. She did not die. She did not have a stroke. The baby was not stillborn. The baby had no complication. And here's what the Bible says in Genesis 21. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age. Listen, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. What's significant about Genesis 21, verses 1 and 2? It says, as God said he would, and the Lord did say as he had spoken. And the Lord, at the set time which God spoke, God said, I will do it. God said, it's going to happen. And God said, the time would happen. You know what that's saying there? You can trust God's word. You can trust God to do the impossible. We need to look to Abraham's faith. Listen, some of us may go into a situation which can be biblically defined this year as an impossible situation. And we need to look to Abraham for our faith. We need to be strong in our faith for things that are impossible. Notice something else here. We find that Abraham, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, I was reading that this morning. One of the great things about Abraham's faith is that he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You know what kept Abraham going as his culture declined? 
You want to keep Abraham straight with God when everybody else was going away, when Lot went away from the Lord? You want to keep Abraham steadfast in spite of the fact for 25 years he had to wait for the promise of God to be fulfilled? You want to keep Abraham going? He looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You know how you're going to make it as a Christian? You've got to look to heaven. You've got to keep your eyes on the city which will never tarnish, the, the city that never becomes obsolete, the city of God, the place that's called my Father's house, which are many mansions. He looked for a city which has foundations. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. He looked at that which was eternal, that which was permanent. And I'm going to tell you right now, you look to Oakland, and you look to San Leandro, and you look to Hayward, and Washington, D.C., and Seattle, Washington, Chicago, Illinois. Listen, the cities will perish, but there's a city in heaven that we can look to that shall never perish, that shall never crumble, that shall never fall apart. It's a city we look forward to when we leave this life. That's my city. That's my place that I'm a citizen. That's where I'll spend all of eternity because I'm saved. Where's your eyes looking at today? He said, look to Abraham. I'm going to give you a faith prescription. I'm telling you this morning, we need to listen to God's advice. We need to look to Abraham. But as we close this morning, we see one more thing. We see we have a faith prescription, but notice we have a fervent prayer. Now, God told all this to Isaiah. And Isaiah still was still concerned because he's going back to verses 17 to 23. And in verses 17 to 23, he's thinking about the judgment of God that was, we just looked at there. He's talking about this cup of trembling. And so he's worried about that. And so eight, now we shift it back. And even though God told him in previous verses, I'm strong and my arm is with you. Listen, Isaiah God, like you and I God, we forget. We forget and we get fearful. And when we get fearful, we tend to lose our faith. Now I don't mean we're throwing away our faith. Just we get weak in our faith there. So look what happens here. Isaiah is praying. Look at verse 9. Isaiah is praying. And he's praying for power. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generation of old. Now, two things he prays for, because I've got to be very quick and close this up. Two things he prays for that you and I can pray for. He had a fervent prayer. When he said, awake, awake, and he's saying, God, would you wake up? Lord, I know you're telling us to wake up. But he's saying, God, would you wake up? He says, God, would you awaken your arm? You know, in other words, he says, God, he says, I know your arm is mighty. The arm of the Lord represents strength and power. And if you would, sinewy biceps and, and listen, defined, defined biceps and defined triceps and divine deltoids and forearms that are rippling. I mean, he's talking about God. He says, your arm is strong. He says, there's nothing, there's nobody more powerful than you, Lord. He says, would you awaken your arm on our behalf? And God said, we'll see in a minute, said he would, but, he, but he's praying for power. Now, two things he's praying for in this power. Number one, look at this verse nine. He's praying for power that defeats the devil. He talks about Rahab. Rahab, he says, are not thou it that cut Rahab? Now, I don't know if you remember, but in past messages, I mentioned this. There is a Rahab who's a harlot that's in Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua 6, and she's found in Matthew chapter 1. This is not that Rahab. Rahab, Rahab, as it might be said, Rahab was referring to a mythical dragon or serpent that lived in the Nile River. It was very well known in the Middle East. It's kind of like today, the myth about the Loch Ness Monster. Remember, you know about the Loch Ness Monster there in England? It's kind of the same concept, right? Or the abominable snowman in the Himalayas, okay? Kind of that same thing. Or the Bigfoot there, if you would, over there, and somewhere in the Seattle mountains there. He's talking about, art now thou it that has cut Rahab the serpent? Now, what's he referring to? He was using the term Rahab to refer to Satan because he talked about Satan in Isaiah chapter 14. Art not now thou it that has cut 
Satan or Rahab and wounded the dragon. You know what he's saying here? God, we need your power to awaken. We need to pray for power against the devil. Let me tell you right now, we're not in a physical battle. We're not in a political battle. We're not in a military battle. Do you know what we're in right now? We're in a spiritual war. We're in a mighty spiritual war. Brother and sister Christ, we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Listen, we're dealing with the devil himself, who's the God of this world, and has blinded the minds of them that believe not. And so if we look at the spirit of the Antichrist, we need to call upon God for his power to defeat the devil. Notice, secondly, it's power we need to overcome extreme difficulties. Look at verse 10. He says, Art not thou it which has dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that has made the depths of the sea away for the ransom pass over? You know what he's referring back to? It's something very rich in the history of Israel. He's referring to the drying up of the Red Sea and the crossing thereof. Now, the best way I could describe it is by going to Lake Michigan in Chicago, standing one side of Chicago to, and going to the other side of reaching into Michigan. And imagine the great, the great Lake Michigan parting across, standing up as a heap on both sides. And the lake bed becoming dry. And people from miles on end and drones that fly over, and airplanes that go over could see these waters that have parted hither and thither, and they're standing up on heaps and watching people go through, and they're not getting muddy, and they're not getting dusty, and it's dry shod they're coming from. And he's reminding them, he says, Now, Lord, the great miracle you did for Moses and you did for Israel there, art not thou he which dried up the river, or dried up the sea? He's saying, we need God's this power. He's praying for power to overcome extreme difficulties. And what's he teaching us there? We need to have fervent prayer for power. He says in the midst of everything going on in our life, we need fervent prayer for power. God's power. Our power is incapable. Our power is weak. Our power is impotent. And you know what God says to all that? He gives them a promise for provision. I don't have time to read it, but if you read verses 11 to 15, He promised them provision. He talks about everlasting joy. He talks about the fact that, that God will give them faith where there's fear. He talks about gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning that will flee away. I'm going to have time to develop it. All He's saying there, He promises them provision. You know what God's saying to you and I? The older you get, the longer you stay at this life, the journey becomes pretty tough. It becomes very wear on you. You become very cynical. You become very discouraged. You become very de- depressed. You know, and you know what some of the signs of that? You start withdrawing from the fellowship of God. And you start withdrawing from your pastor. And you start withdrawing from the word of God. And you start withdrawing. When you see signs of yourself withdrawing, that's signs that you become cynical, you're withdrawing, and you've lost your faith in God. And you know what God's saying here? You need to pray for that power in your life that wounded the dragon. And you need to pray for that power in your life that can help you through extreme difficulties. And here's what God says. When you pray, according to the, that, that's, that's biblical praying. That's praying in the will of God. What he's saying what he'll do there. He makes provision for us. He promises us provision. You know what God is saying there in verses 11 to 15? I'm going to answer your prayer. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, aren't you glad this morning he's our heavenly Father, amen? How much more shall your heavenly Father give good things to them that ask him? You know what he's saying there? If, God would, if you and I would take care of the basic provision of bread and fish, our own children, and you got to go back to the days of the Hebrew believers, don't you think God will take care of you? Don't you think God will give you his power? I mean, do you believe that? Amen? Come on. That's what he said he would do. He ends with a prayer. Prayer for power. Prayer for a pathway. A prayer for provision. A prayer for his presence. And you know, prayer... Prayer 
is the entry into a faith relationship with God. We must call on the name of the Lord to be saved. A prayer that confesses that we're sinners and believes with our heart that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, that he died for us and rose again from the dead. It's through that kind of a prayer you can be saved. Heaven can be yours. And this day, this 10th day of January, you can be born again to God's family. Are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved? And Christian friend, are you awake? Are you awake to prayer? Would you listen to his advice? Would you look to Abraham? Don't you realize this morning God loves you? God cares about your faith, your walk with him, what you decide and where you go. Look to Abraham. Look to Abraham, your shield and covering. How to pray for God to do the impossible. He looked for a city, and I want you to look for that city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God.